Well, if you turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Ruth, book of Ruth, we'll begin reading chapter 1. Ruth 1, and we will end up reading the whole chapter. Joshua judges Ruth. I'm excited about starting this series uh, here in Ruth. And uh, so I look forward to spending the next couple weeks diving into this this fascinating uh, story of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read on down to the end of the chapter. God's word says, In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband, if I should say I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah passed her mother and, and and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, "See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law." But Ruth said, "Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also." If anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi said that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they were caught, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned 
And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Sounds like we're setting off some piccolo peats somewhere in the... <laughs> Do we know what that noise is? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, thanks for being honest, Paul. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's a nice, beautiful sound. Uh, let's... uh. Let's uh let's pray. Father, we come before you now. God, we thank you for your word that you've blessed us with. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story that we have in the Old Testament of your of your faithfulness, uh your your control, your your sovereignty and your work, your providential work in the lives of those who seek to follow after you. Lord God, we ask now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few moments can be as moving or as beautiful as a well-orchestrated orchestra. Now, I think that sentence helps you understand how little I know about music. Uh, Many of you know that I could barely pass the recorder in fourth grade. So, my lack of knowledge, I think, helps me on the one hand appreciate how conductors keep all the moving parts of an orchestra moving and progressing in harmony and making beautiful music that ultimately is meant to stir the emotions. And, and, and friends, that's similar to what the Lord God is doing with all of history, keeping history moving all for his glory. And that's what we see in this incredible book of Ruth. Uh, the curtain is kind of pulled back on redemptive history. God hasn't answered my prayer from last week about uh, the kiddos uh, paying attention during my kiddos paying attention during this week. So as we come to the the book of Ruth, that's what we see here is really the curtain kind of pulled back on redemptive history. Uh, We see how God is working even in the mundane, keeping all of the parts of history moving towards the goal of his glory and his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. This book of Ruth is one of the greatest stories ever told, one of the greatest stories ever written. It, It tells the story of two widows and how God is working in their seemingly small and insignificant lives to prepare the way for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who will one day come to earth and redeem us, redeem his people from their sins. And so in one sense, the book of Ruth is an Advent story, for it tells the the backstory of the coming of a king who would unite the people of God, and, and, and I know this has been a rough year for, for some of you, and we usually don't do Advent until about four weeks before uh, Christmas, but this year, it's 2020. Why not start Advent right now, even before Thanksgiving? Advent literally means coming, right? And so that's really what Ruth is about, the coming, the preparation of, and the preparation for a king who's going to unite the people of God. 
it tells the backstory that we'll see in a couple of, uh, of chapters, the backstory of King David. And so the setting of Ruth is, is laid out for us in verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So the days when the judges ruled. If you turn back in your Bibles one page, you see the book of Judges. And, and you see in, in Judges 21, verse 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the time period that Ruth occurs in is not a very good one in the history of Israel. There's great turmoil going on in Israel. If you read the book of Judges, it's hardly anything but peaceful. There's much hardship in Israel because Israel is often disobedient towards God. They often would turn their backs on God and they would follow these gods of the nations around them. And so even though the book of Ruth takes place in an incredibly low point in Israel's history, what we're going to see is that God is still at work. Yes, we see at the end of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Is anything good happening during this time? Well, then you turn the page of Judges and you come to this wonderful story of Ruth, this account of this foreign woman and a Bethlehem farmer. And it may seem odd. It may seem odd what the Lord is doing. But we're going to see at the end of this book that this seemingly unimportant account that God is actually at work mightily. In a day in which the, the people and judges were continually spiraling in and out of sin, they were doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. Certainly there would have been some in Israel wondering, what is God doing in the midst of all of this? And yet he was still at work. And friends, I hope this should be a, that should be a great encouragement for us in, in this real life story of a number of widows who have gone through incredible loss. God was still at work. He was at work preparing for the coming of the ultimate Redeemer, the Messiah. And so this wonderful story, it's a wonderful story, but in the grand scheme of things, it seems rather mundane. It, it, it's full of difficulty. It's full of loss. It's full of hardship. It's full of sorrow and bitterness. There, there's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no spectacular encounters with angels or visions. No, it's rather mundane, hard and difficult times, kind of like normal life. And yet God is still at work. Uh, I heard one pastor, John Piper, put it this way. God is doing 10,000 things in your life for his glory that you have no idea what he is doing. And so that the setting of Ruth kind of leads us into one of the major themes of the book of Ruth. And that's God's sovereignty and it's his providence. It's how he is, is guiding and directing all of history for his glory. God's goodness is on display here. His control, his sovereignty is on display here in the book of Ruth in these incredibly hard circumstances. So that's one of the major themes of the book of Ruth is God's sovereignty and providence. His direction in the everyday, seemingly mundane things of life. Uh, another important theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. The, the words redeem, redeemer, redemption occur 23 times in this short little book. 
And there's two different types of redemption that are spoken of here. There's property redemption, and then there's this Levi, Levi-right marriage, a, a redemptive sort of marriage. And we'll get into that later in the coming weeks. So redemption is a major theme. Redemption involves the act of gaining something in exchange for a payment. And, and really, redemption is one of the major themes all throughout the Bible. Uh, all throughout uh, the history of Israel, we see God redeemed Israel out of slavery. We see the, the theme of redemption here in Ruth, and we see ultimately in the New Testament, God providing ultimate redemption for us from our sins by sending Jesus to die in our place. So the book of Ruth, all to say, is a wonderful story. There are a number of characters. There's Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. There's a plot. We'll see that the story develops from extreme loss and sorrow in chapter 1 to the extreme blessing of chapter 4. There is tension in the story. What's going to happen to Ruth and what's going to happen to Naomi? Will Boaz uh, redeem Ruth? But then there is also resolution to this tension, and I'm not going to give that away yet. Some, most of you already know. But let's go ahead. Let's dive into chapter 1. And chapter 1 can kind of be divided up into three different scenes. Three different parts, three different scenes. And so we're going to see the first scene of chapter 1 is the setting for the story that we've already talked about. It's in Judges. And the, this first scene is the flight from Bethlehem. We see that in verses 1 through 3 that they go and they leave Bethlehem. Elimelech and Naomi, they, they flee to Moab. You also see the reason for their flight was what? It was due to famine. Ironically, Bethlehem means the house of bread. However, due to famine, there is a lack of bread. Now, it's important that, that the author of Ruth shows us that there's a famine going on. And at what point in Israel's history is this famine taking place? It's taking place in the time of Judges. So God, when he had redeemed Israel out of slavery, as we learned about in the book of Exodus, after this, God had made a covenant with the people whom he had redeemed out of slavery. And you can read about the, the promise of following this, this covenant that God had made with them in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. God had basically said in those two chapters, look, if you are faithful and obedient to me, I will bless you in the land of Canaan. If you're unfaithful to me, then you will be cursed. And one of the major curses for disobedience, one of the major curses for unfaithfulness was famine. So if they were unfaithful, they would be cursed. And part of that curse includes famine. And so that's what's going on here. Here in this time in Israel's history, when they're unfaithful to God, they're reaping, or we'd say rather they're, they are lacking in reaping due to their sins. Remember, the time period of Judges, they're spiraling in and out of sin, in and out of repentance. And so God's words from Deuteronomy are coming true here in the book of Ruth. And the purpose of these famines and these hardships that they would face in the book of Judges according to God's covenant, was ultimately to bring them to repentance, was so that they would call out to God, they would recognize their need, and they'd call out to him, they'd return to him. But what do we see Elimelech and Naomi doing here? This family does not do that. 
instead of this famine uh, causing them to repent and turn to the Lord, what do they do? They flee to the land of Moab, to, to Moab, that great land of faithfulness to Yahweh. No, 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 no. Moab was an enemy of Israel, an enemy of Yahweh. Moab would actually become sort of a synonym for uh, pagan religion. So, so, so it would become a synonym for unfaithfulness to the Lord God. So there are a number of factors here that they're fleeing from Bethlehem to Moab is actually an indication that they are turning their backs on God. Moab was one of Israel's uh, uh, great enemies, and they would often fight against each other. Israel looked down upon Moab because the Moabites' origins begin in Genesis 19 with the incestuous relationship from Lot and his daughters. So in Genesis 19, Moab is actually the son of Lot. Also, another reason why Moab was an enemy to Israel is because when the people of Israel left Egypt, the Moabites would not let them pass through their land. You also read in Numbers 25 that Moabite women had seduced Israelites to to, to follow after their gods, and God punishes them. But another indication that they're actually fleeing from the Lord is because during the period of Judges, the Moabite king Eglon, whom you can read about in Judges 3, is known for being incredibly overweight, well, he had oppressed Israel. He's ultimately judged or or he's ultimately put to death by the left-handed sword killer uh, Ehud. But all of those reasons there, they had been oppressing Israel. All of these reasons show that Moab was not just a political enemy of Israel, but they're also a spiritual enemy. Because much of their pagan worship included various types of cultic prostitution and immorality. So when they're leaving Bethlehem, they're actually turning their backs upon God. And notice that in verse 1 it says that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That that word there is literally reside temporarily in Moab. Suggesting that when they left, they were thinking, well, we'll just kind of wait out the famine. But guess what? Ten years later, they're still there. And that's often how sin works, isn't it? Here they, they turn their backs on God thinking, but we'll only do it for just a little while. However, when we do that, when we turn our backs on God, we never plan to sin for very long. But that's the way sin works in our lives, because it's so entangling. Only one look, only one drink, only one lie, only one kind of mixing of the numbers. Only one, only one, only one. Sin is always seeking to pull us away from the Lord. It's interesting. Their plan was to sojourn there, reside temporarily. But verse 2, it says they remained there. Then we see in verse 3 that as they remained there, we learn of Naomi's first bitter sorrow. Verse 3, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then as verse 4, it says that they took Moabite wives, names of Orpah and and Ruth. 
And they lived there about 10 years. So she, Naomi loses her husband, and next her two sons marry these Moabite women. They had turned their back on God even further, because to marry Moabite women was actually, a, again, a, a, a denial of God's covenant, a, a seeking to be unfaithful to God's covenant. Why is this such a big deal? Well, because in the Old Testament, God forbid them from marrying women of nations who did not serve God. Now, some have right, have wrongly said, well, here, the Bible is teaching a form of racism or, or forbids interracial marriages. But that's not true, nor is that what the Bible teaches. When God told the people of Israel not to marry foreign women, he was saying so in relationship to their religious practices. Because we're going to see in the book of Ruth, Boaz does what? He marries a foreign woman, right? But who is she? Ultimately, she believes in Yahweh. She's a God-fearer. What we see, that command to not marry these foreign women, would be similar to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, where he's uh, he's warning believers about not marrying unbelievers because they're going to be unequally yoked. And that's what's going on in the Old Testament. That's why that practice was seen as turning their backs on God, because they're marrying women who were not serving the Lord. And you see that in the life of Solomon, right? How his foreign wives led him off into idolatry. But next we see that her sorrow increases. Sorrow upon sorrow. Now, Naomi is going to lose both of her sons. Verse 5, both Malan and Kilian died. So that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. Can you uh can you picture Naomi standing at that third grave? She's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. Now second son is buried in the grave. You see the expression of her grief in verse 20, where she says, Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. You know, does she even feel anything or is she so numbed that she can no longer feel sorrow Naomi has found herself now in one of the most painful and difficult circumstances she has no living fruit of her womb her family line has ended with her second son now buried in the grave she has no living descendants so really she has no hope of any sort of economic income. In their day, family was everything. Family was seen as a blessing from God, but family was also your retirement plan. So not only has she lost her husband, but now her her economic outlook is as bad as it could be without having any offspring to take care of. She is going to live the rest of her life as a beggar. Now most would turn their backs on the Lord when they face this sorrow upon sorrow. But Naomi does understand one thing. Look what she says in verse 20 and 21. She says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Despite all of the sorrow, despite all of her bitterness that she feels in her life, 
she did get this right. She still recognizes God's sovereignty in her life. She does not fully turn her back on God here. No, she still recognizes that God is the one who is in control. She understands, as Job did, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God governs and he rules all. Naomi was right in what she said about God. The Almighty reigns over the affairs of the universe. And friends, we should believe that as well. She did get that right. So there's that first scene there of all of this sorrow that she is experiencing. But now as we come to verse 6, we're going to see this second scene. She's got a decision to make in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she hears this, and in verse 7, she set out to out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And so she's got this decision to make. Is she going to stay or is she going to go? So she sets off in verse 7. And as she's heading back, she turns to her daughters-in-law and she says in verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone against you. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This may seem kind of odd that Naomi is telling them to go back. But Naomi knows what awaits these two women in Israel. They're three widows. They've got no descendants to take care of them. Two of them. Ruth and Orpah are foreigners. They're going to be looked down upon. And that's an understatement. Because actually, if you look at, at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when Boaz uh, meets Ruth in the fields, he, he tells her, stay close to my young women. And, and actually, I've ordered my young men not to touch you. And, and, and later in chapter 2, Naomi go, when, when Ruth goes back to Naomi and, and tells her that Boaz is going to protect her, She's gonna, she says, good, stay in his field. Don't go in another field because you'll be assaulted. So her telling them to go back, she knows that they're not just going to be widows. They're not just going to be foreigners. They're going to be enemies of the people of Israel. Every single day, they would live under the threat, under the threat of assault or even worse. So, Orpah goes back. Really, she made the choice that makes the best sense from a worldly point of view. There's not much hope of a great future in Israel. She would be a social outcast. No one would want to marry her. And she's likely still marrying age, so she returns to Moab. And I love what verse 14 says. But Ruth clung to her. 
in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Isn't that interesting? Back to her gods. Ruth and Orpah had a choice in front of them. They could have Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem, or they could have the hope of a good future, everything, minus Yahweh and Moab. Orpah decides to rather have the gods of Moab plus hope for a promising future, so she returns. She returned to her gods. What about you, friends? Will you turn back to your gods when life gets tough? When trials and difficulties arise, what will you turn to? Who will you turn to? Will you turn to substances? Will you turn to money? Will you turn to yourself, to your sinful desires? Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to give his life so that we might live for him, so that we might live in light of eternity and bear fruit that lasts for eternity. Christ died so that no matter what happens in this life, good or bad, we might live for him. Not live for that which perishes. Not live for that which moth and rust destroy. That's what Orpah chose. Things that would one day be gone. But what about you? Will you turn back? Or will you continue serving the Lord? But not so Ruth. She clung to Naomi. And then Ruth says in verses 16 and 17, one of the greatest statements of faith in all of Scripture. She says, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She basically says, look, I am bound to you and whatever happens to you is going to happen to me. So help me, God. And notice in verse 17, she says, may the Lord. You'll notice that in some of your translations, it should have the Lord in all caps. That's the covenant name, Yahweh there, the covenant name of the Lord. She takes the covenant name of God for herself, showing us that ultimately she has made the Lord, the one true God, her own. Have you? You can do so today, friends. Because Christ died and rose so that you could live for him. So that you could take the name of God for your own. What Ruth is doing here is she's really essentially making a vow that she's serving the Lord. She had come to trust in Yahweh. And because she believed in him, she knew what she had to do. Her decision in following Yahweh was clear, but it was difficult. Clear, but difficult. She knew what she had to do to follow God, but she knew that it would be difficult. And friends, following Jesus does not mean that all your problems are going to go away. Following the Lord does not mean that your life is going to be easy. Ruth knew that if she stayed in Moab, 
that yes, she would have a good prospect for another marriage. She would likely be able to live in safety among people that look just like her. But her faith in Yahweh would die. So she realizes that she needs to be with the people of God. She realizes she can't stay in Moab. She must go. She must face whatever difficulties lie in front of her. But she's not going to be going alone. She's going to be going with the Lord, with Yahweh as her God. In one sense, Ruth knew that she would be living as an immigrant in Israel. An immigrant is somebody who leaves something familiar behind and plunges into the unknown. Some of you I know are immigrants. You've told me your story of how you've, you, you fled uh, persecution. You fled uh, oppressive governments to come to the, this, this United States that we live in today. And, and so, uh, or, or many of you are likely children of immigrants. And in reality, every act of immigration is drastic. It's challenging. It's, it's going to be difficult. You're leaving behind the familiar and going somewhere different. Why? Because you have hope for a better future, right? I know immigration has become so politicized in our day, hasn't it? But, but I want you to see how in this book, this book of Ruth, this poor, widowed, immigrant woman, God uses mightily. She has one of the greatest expressions of faith that we see in all of Scripture. And what the Lord is teaching us here is he's teaching us God is using the movements of nations ultimately for his glory and for the spread of the good news. Ruth, this Moabite immigrant, would be the great-grandmother of King David. She's even listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Friends, almost all of us have some sort of immigrant in our family. Even if you don't, guess what? You're an immigrant. If you're a Christian, right? This world is not our final home. We're a sojourner and stranger passing through this world. So we should have compassion on those God has brought around us. So we should see immigrants today not as a political issue, but as a gospel opportunity. Uh, there, there's a movement in the Christian in Christian missions today called the Diaspora People Groups. In other words, diaspora means literally scattered. And so there are people groups from certain countries that are scattered all over the world. There are many, even in our own country today, people groups scattered from all over the world here, living among us in America, that it would be almost impossible for us today to go to their countries and tell them about the gospel because of religious persecution. Actually, something that I just learned about a couple of weeks ago is that we have International Missions Board, IMB missionaries, who are deployed to these people groups all over the world. And starting this next year, we're actually going to have IMB missionaries deployed here in the United States, reaching these scattered people groups. How incredible it is that the Lord is bringing the nations to us, wielding the nations for His glory, for the advancement of the gospel. But why is it? That, that so many professing believers actually see the nations coming to us as a bad thing. Maybe it's because they spend more time watching the news than reading their Bibles. Yes, friends, there are issues about legal and illegal immigration, and I'm not saying I have the answer for that. I don't have the answer for that. 
but neither do our politicians. Be clear. Maybe the Lord is bringing the nations to us because we American Christians have been too lazy and comfortable to take the gospel to the nations. What an incredible gospel opportunity we have before us. How God is moving and how he's wielding the nations for his glory, for the spread of the gospel, for that good news of great joy that will be for all people. So we see that in the book of Ruth. And may we see that in our day as well. Now, immigrants who leave their country, they they take incredible risk, right? But they do so in hope of having a better life. But here's Ruth, who's willing to leave everything behind, willing to leave everything familiar and go somewhere where she is in all likelihood going to have a worse life. And yet she vows to serve the Lord. That incredible statement in verses 16 and 17. She knows that leaving Moab, her life would likely only get worse. But she wouldn't be going alone. She would be going with the Lord. Now, as we come to the end of this chapter, we see this third scene. Where they're back in Bethlehem. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She goes back. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. So there's Naomi back in Bethlehem. And what does she say? She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. In other words, she's saying, I have nothing. But who's standing next to her? Who's clinging to her? All the while, there's Ruth clinging to her. Ruth is going to take care of her. And Ruth, how we're going to see God is actually using Ruth and ultimately he's using Ruth to take care of Naomi. Now remember back in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, Paul says, I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So in other words, I keep on pressing on because Christ has me. Here is Ruth clinging to Naomi and it's really a beautiful picture of God who's taken hold of Naomi. But she doesn't see it yet. She will. You know, often when we're so caught in the moment, we don't see the blessings of God all around us. Often we're caught in the midst of our trials and difficulties. We don't see those who are sticking with us by our side. We we miss out on the blessings of God all around us. I know this is kind of a silly illustration, but I think of it when you're when you're really hungry for dinner. And Yet you can't make up your mind. What do you say? Or what do I say? We don't have anything to eat. right? All the while, the pantry is full. That's kind of similar to what Naomi is doing. She's, she's so wrapped up in the moment that she's missing out on the blessing of Ruth right next to her. And actually, God's hand in Ruth's life taking care of her. Friends, do you see God orchestrating the events in your life for his glory? 
the people he's bringing in and moving out, the trials and difficulties, do you see God's work in your life? Why does it seem like there's so much suffering in your life right now? Why does Naomi suffer so much? Some might say, well, it's because of her original disobedience. But we see that even in her foolish decision to run from the Lord at the beginning of chapter 1, we see that God actually used her son would, would meet Ruth. He used that foolish decision so that he would meet Ruth, who would one day be the great-grandmother of David and an ancestor of our Lord Jesus you ever wonder why it seems some Christians go through so much suffering? Maybe it's because God is using your suffering to bring others to find life in Jesus Christ. Don't miss out on that. Our sufferings aren't just for ourselves. Not just for you, but to reach others. So live for Christ in your suffering. May your sufferings ultimately bear fruit that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of your work in our lives, that even when we have no idea what you're doing, why you are doing, Lord, you will be glorified, you will be honored. Lord, even in the midst of great sorrow and bitterness and distress, Lord, you are at work to draw us to yourself and to draw others to yourself. Father, use our sorrows. Help us to see how our sorrows can be used to glorify you and tell others about the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.